Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law, and with me on the air, but not in person, is my colleague, Ellie Mistal. Happy holidays, everybody. What a lovely sentiment. Hey, I'm since you're not sitting in front of me, I'm going to go ahead and assume, probably incorrectly, that you're fully clothed. I am wearing, not only am I fully clothed, I'm trying to save money on heat, so I'm wearing an ugly Christmas sweater um, that my uh, two-year-old allegedly bought for me last year. Ah, okay. well, that's, that's why this isn't a video cast, ladies and gentlemen. So... What's going on? Uh, what's going on in your world over there? Do you have anything that's got you upset today, or are you just filled with the joy of the season? Yeah, the joy of the season is what is grinding my gears today. Christmas, man, and I'm going to say Christmas. I don't mean to offend anybody by, by that. Uh, my, we we celebrate Christmas in our house. We have a tree. I don't put any uh, white Santas or, or or white angels on my tree because that's how I roll. But but I just I can't. I'm, I'm, I'm having children has turned me into a total Christmas humbug. It's a ridiculous season. I should basically at this point just direct deposit my paycheck to Disney and Fisher Price. I've got three year old and a four month old and they just take all my money, just all my disposable income. But the thing that really pisses me off, and again, I don't mean to offend anybody about th- anybody with this, but the thing that pisses me off is that, you know, my wife works really hard to afford these presents. I, you know, I do my thing. But my wife works really hard. I mean, she has to afford you too. And at the end of the day, on Christmas morning, when everything is all beautiful and whatever, you know who the kids are going to think did all the presents? Santa. They're going to think that a fat white man stole into our house came up with all these presents, and mommy and daddy bought socks. Like, that's what they're going to think. That's ridiculous. Defend your boy. Defend your boy Santa Claus. No, that's why you got to reserve the best thing as what you get. Just the one best thing is from you two. Santa, Santa catches up on volume, right? Like, he's, get, he's getting all that stuff. You, you go quality. <laughs> no, that's never how we did it in our house. It was always Santa had the big, Santa brings the big gifts, the ones that take time and elfin, you know, elven magic. We get the the parents get the socks and the jacket and the things that you need that but you don't really want. Oh, see, no, that's how it is. Nah, nah, nah. It's a terrible, it's a terrible system. And who makes money off of this system? Disney, Hallmark, Fisher Price. God, I hate Fisher Price. Hey, listen, you're you're the tool of your own oppression there. See, you're buying into the idea that Santa has to bring the biggest thing. You can break that chain right now. You can you can be the one who who gives them the bike, you know? That's that's your job. You're the one, yeah. And then my child will have no appreciation for Christmas magic. No, no. Again, and will probably grow up and, and end up with a heroin addiction. Santa doesn't bring black tar heroin in stockings unless you're bad, I suppose. <laughs> um, but no, you, no, like you, Santa still has magic, brings bunches of stuff. But, you know, you, you know, you get the credibility. It's terrible, man. For, you know, all the contribution that you do or more accurately that your wife does. All the parents out there know the struggle is real. The Christmas struggle is real. Like I said, happy freaking holidays. Well, with that. Um, I guess, joyous introduction to the season. Let's move on to our actual subject matter for the week, shall we? Uh, our guest today is Runway Chung. He's, uh, he's at the SMU Dedman School of Law, 
and he's got an undergraduate degree from MSU. Congratulations on making the college football playoff. And an MBA from the University of Chicago who doesn't have a football team. And he also writes for us here at Above the Law from time to time. So it's good to have a columnist who we normally only interact with over email and writing to uh, actually talk to in person. Thanks for having me. Runway, you are the only columnist that the commenters hate more than they hate me. What is that like for you there? It's it's amazing. Uh, I'm, I'm just amazed by uh, how many days I ruin every week. So it's interesting to see, that's for sure. You're just another social justice warrior. Wait, do you honestly <laughs> think they hate you, Ellie, more than me? I feel as though I'm the most hated. I, I mean, I know that this is now becoming a, a competition between the three of us, who's the most hated, but... I mean, I don't, I don't think you count because you don't read them. Yeah. Like you, don't internal, you don't internalize their slings and arrows. You know, I read, I still read like 90% of the Aww. comments that I get. Oh, I don't read them either. Yeah, I stopped reading a while ago. But uh, I have friends for me, some of, the, some of the good zingers, so. I didn't know that. You don't read them? No, one, uh, someone brought it to my attention that someone was impersonating me on there and writing a bunch of terrible stuff. So that's why I was brought back into the fold of the comment section. But I haven't read them for a couple of months. No, I read all of them, man. Feedback, yo. Well, anything you read from me is not from me, so no, no hateful spew from me. Yeah, I usually skim it real quick to see if there's any substantive comment. Like if it's somebody's going to say something actually about the story, have a argument both pro or con to what I've said. If there's something intelligent there, as in my skimming, then I might focus. But since most of the commenters are incapable of understanding the article and say things like, brr, dur, dumb. I generally, I, don't I generally, I basically, when I read all of them, so. I'll, what I'll do is that I'll get really drunk and then I'll find basically the dumbest one, like kind of almost like a straw man, like pretty, the, the weakest one um, of the, of the idiots. And then I will just try to unload all of my hate and anger on that one person. Call them from the herd. Yeah. I can't beat all the column, all the commenters, but I can kill one, one of them kind of one at a time. Yeah, see, I just don't care that much. I kind of, if they're engaging substantively, I'm interested. And if they aren't, I, I just can't even be bothered to worry. Yeah, that's because you go out and have real friends. And, I'm um, amazed you guys uh, still read them. That's, that's impressive to me. Well, I barely yeah. do, remember. <laughs> I got skin like an alligator. But you know what? And, 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 here, and here's how I'm going to make this. use moisturizer. That'll clear that up. Here's how I'm going to make this transition, though. The, reading the commenters, it's not all that different than reading the latest transcript from the Supreme Court. Really? Ooh, I, I, look, it's, at, it's just, look at that transition. That segue I'm, was seamless. I'm, I'm a professional. Yeah. Um, but I'm not, and I'm also not wrong, right? Uh, what I wanted to talk about today was, uh, uh, if you haven't been following the news, um, uh, affirmative action was back in the Supreme Court uh, uh, recently. Um, there was oral arguments on Fisher v. Texas 2. Um, the case had been re uh, Fisher one. Kennedy said that the case needed to be remanded to the Fifth Circuit to kind of look at uh, to apply strict scrutiny um, to Texas's uh, affirmative action plan. Um, the Fifth Circuit, for like the eighteen thousandth time, decided that Texas's uh, uh, affirmative action plan was was valid and constitutional. Um, they appealed to the Supreme Court again. The Supreme Court granted cert again for reasons passing understanding. Um, and oral arguments um, happened recently. And during oral arguments, Scalia said pretty much the most racist thing that you're going to hear from the court. Am I wrong about that yet? No, I, I don't. I don't think so. It was in, in if I I guess I'm going to probably be forced to play devil's advocate here. And I'll just say 
in his defense, what he did was cite what one of the amicus briefs said. He didn't necessarily say that he thought that. That said, I mean, why pull that quote out if you don't actually think it? He, he was the only one that cited Richard Sanders' um, amicus brief um, where Sanders did, did his mismatch theory. And if you well, if it, not, it wasn't it wasn't Sanders' amicus, I don't think, but it was citing Sander. Yeah. It was citing yeah, citing his his mismatch theory. And if you're not if you don't know what mismatch theory is, um, I'm going to do a poor job explaining it because I think it's a load of crap. But for the sake of of, of having both sides. Um, mismatch basically suggests that the problem with affirmative action is that it places um, African-American and minority students in more advanced uh, uh, institutions of higher learning than they are ready for. Um, when you place them into more advanced uh, situations, they do poorly, and doing poorly at a more advanced institution somehow negatively affects their lives and their souls and their ability to succeed in, in the world. Whereas if, whereas if they had just gone to a less advanced institution, an easier curriculum, um, they would have done well with the easier curriculum and felt good about themselves, and that would have propelled them on to greater career successes. Um, that's the theory. There's a lot of statistical evidence to suggest that Sander is wrong about that theory. Um, there are a lot of there are a lot of arguments that I think that that we can make uh, about this theory, but that was the theory that that Scalia cited. But he cited it in the most kind of most ridiculous way possible. Um, he said that 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 black scientists do not come from the most advanced universities. Um, in fact, they come from less advanced schools, slower schools. Again, this is Scalia, and that perhaps that was better for them. Runway. Uh, <laughs> How do you how do you deal with with that? How do you deal when a Supreme Court justice that is generally respected um, as an intelligent person in our you know global community? Um, what do you do when when you hear that kind of stuff? And how how do you respond to that? So with Scalia, I think you know sometimes you have to take what he says with a grain of salt. I think sometimes he he just says a couple of things to get a little attention. He's been on kind of a speaking tour the last several years. Uh, uh, it is surprising that he would reference the mismatch theory. Um, it's been debunked uh, in the book Race, Class, and Affirmative Action by Seagal Alon. Uh, she debunked it by class and de debunked it by race uh, in the American Ivies class in Israel. Um, so class-based or race-based, this mismatch theory doesn't hold up. Um, then there was an open letter to SCOTUS uh, from the professional physicist, and uh, they also reference that this mismatch theory has been discredited. So it's hard to, to think about that, but I, I might be even more bothered by uh, Justice Roberts' um, statement. You know, it's hard to believe that we can divorce hard sciences from social realities. You know, we learn about the universe through community. So to say that uh, what, what, value does a minority add to a physicist class? I think I'm, I'm even more bothered by that than by Scalia's comments. Again, Scalia didn't get voted chief, and uh, he's been on quite a speaking tour, but from Roberts, um, I, I'm a little more bothered by. You mentioned, the, uh, you mentioned that letter from the physicists and astrophysicists, which I actually did a quick write-up of uh, for Above the Law. That That letter, I thought, was very well put together and kind of... Uh, it, it really hit home as to the problem with Robert's argument. And I agree with you that as I read it, the more it seemed as though Robert's probably had said the more questionable uh, thing racially, which was that somehow as 
the framing of it was that a black student in a science class must offer something unique to that science class to deserve their place. As though, and I think this is a letter from that line, the implied assumption, the implied question that isn't asked is why is having a only white people in a class some sort of an advantage to science? And it's that kind of unspoken assumption that is being glossed over that I thought the scientist's letter was really good on. It's, it's that white people are, are, the, are the default. My contribution to this online, and you can also read this on Above Law, um, was simply to point out that probably the most famous astrophysicist that we have in our country right now is Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he graduated from... University of Texas. He got his BA at Harvard, got his MA at Texas, and went on to get his PhD from Columbia. Now, interestingly, after I wrote that article, a lot of people kind of pushed back on me saying that, like, no, Tyson is a perfect example of why you shouldn't have affirmative action because not that Tyson needed affirmative action to go from Harvard to Texas. Harvard, but he's a great example because um, Tyson actually didn't do well at Texas. He only got his MA there. There were some problems. He had to go on to Columbia to get his PhD. To me, this is uh, Tyson's, and this is assuming that he struggled as much as asshole commenters are, are suggesting he did. But to me, Tyson's struggle at Texas is even more of a reason for affirmative action because what you see, I think, what, what, one, of the reason, one of the big reasons that mismatch is such a troubling theory to me is that even the experience of going to a school that perhaps is more advanced than what you are prepared for, black, white, or whatever, just more advanced than what you're prepared for, and getting your ass kicked in that school can still have significant educational benefits for you in your future career, in your life, right? Like the, the challenge, having the struggle, not succeeding in the struggle can better prepare you for succeeding on the next test or the next challenge or the next issue. Now, I, I would, I would, I don't, I don't want to be reductive here and, and put, you know, all race that all race is going to struggle or not. But if you, if you look at uh, Christensen's book, The Innovator's Dilemma, you know, if, if, if it's a first stage or beta and you're, you're, uh, you're, you're the first of your family to go to this say more prestigious school and you do struggle a little bit um you're going to earn your stripes and it's going to make you better for it and you're going to be able to talk to the next generation so on and so forth and and not to again be too reductive about it but i i completely agree with what you're saying Ellie. i think a lot of times uh this you know the struggle is what makes someone better what makes someone more polished at their craft well let's let's play some more identity politics with uh fisher um, if you're if you're listening to this at home, you probably you might not know that Runway um, is Asian American. Actually, don't uh, I, I'm, assu- I'm assuming that really just from looking at you, right? That's that's cool. Uh, <laughs> um, and so one of the one of the little things about Fisher that I find fascinating is that if you are if you are going to make the argument against affirmative action, Abigail Fisher, the the woman at the center of this case, is kind of your worst possible argument, right? She's a mediocre student. Um, the, the joke is that she couldn't have gotten into the University of Texas if her color was burnt orange, right? She, she, she's not, she wasn't a good student. In fact, there are, if, if somebody has, has a legitimate beef with affirmative action, it's not going to be your mediocre white student. It's going to be your Asian student, which if we're going to take standardized testing as the end all and be all of merit, Asians and Jews routinely whoop whoop butt 
on standardized testing. And they are, based on their test scores, underrepresented in most of the universities that we're talking about. So the university can admit, yes, some black people, but also some mediocre ass white people. Um, so, Renway, since, since you're Asian and I'm going to, to put you in a little bit of a box here, does that piss you off? Uh, the, the merit arguments or uh, how people that, that, are trying to play both sides. That, of you, that, that your spots are being taken by mediocre white people. N- no, be, because I think the, the whole part uh, of, you know, and the whole part of the system is it's not completely merit based. You know, you look at the holistic of the process. If we're going to de- defer the complex educational judgments of, of the university, um, like we accepted that we would do it in Grutter, in Grutter, then uh, we, we understand that it's a holistic process. And and there is this um, case study or, or this study a couple of years ago that talked about being merit based based versus biased. And uh, it was two groups. Uh, one group of white people were said, uh, basically, these are the standards to get in. Um, is, would this work? Is this what you prefer? And the other group said, these are the standards to get in, uh, but Asian Americans make up twice as many undergraduates proportionally in the UC system as they do in the population of the state. Uh, do you still you know, prefer these standards? And then they changed from wanting a more merit-based to being a more holistic uh, process. Um, I was about because to say, like, spoiler alert. Like you said, uh, I mean, Asians at the time, I think they averaged 1641 on the SAT. Um, the average white person was 1578. So I think we understand that it's not a completely merit-based system. And, and there is a, a host of factors that you can take. And I think as long as it's compelling a state interest, you know, it, it's, it goes along with the Constitution. Um, we're reviewing these university preferences and judging if there's a need. I think that, you know, at the end of the day, it, it's a constitutional question. And I and I think, you know, it's in line with the Constitution. And uh, this case is being brought up, um, like Clarence Thomas said he wanted to do, uh, in the original case, is to overrule uh, Gruder. So I, I, I don't know. I just... I think this is a much more bigger question than than playing at the margins. How do you think it's going to come out, Joe? You 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 do fantasy SCOTUS. How how do you think? Yeah, this is now gonna... it's amazing you said that because the next question was going to be. So I'm filling out my fantasy SCOTUS card here, and I need to. Uh, for those who don't do it, fantasy SCOTUS is out there, and you can win prizes. It's uh it's fun. I actually won a won an Amazon gift card last time for my accuracy. Anyway. So I'm filling out my SCOTUS, my fantasy SCOTUS card, and this is this is a rough one for me. Like I I, I don't quite know what's going to happen. What What do you think, Renway? I you know what I I don't know what's going to happen either. I'm optimistic, but this is a little bit of a wild card for me too. I know Kennedy's never voted to up, uphold a, a affirmative action program, so and, and then That's one you think- know one justice. Uh, excused herself, so it's right. going to be a tough, tough to get the vote. For those playing along at home, Elena Kagan recused herself from this case because she had argued um, or worked on the case um, when she was still Solicitor General. Yeah, I wonder if uh, I wonder if this is the four four debacle. Well, like Kennedy strikes me as though there's a chance, and I, I think Kennedy probably is going to ruin affirmative action for everybody. But a small part of me thinks that he might. His interest in just not rocking any real boats, I think, uh, just kind of keeping things going on an even keel and not standing out as much, um, you know, unless it's something like gay rights where he wants to be a hero. I think maybe he might find some technical reason. I don't know. 
I think this is going to be uh, 5-3, and I think Kennedy is going to ruin affirmative action for everybody. And I look, in my, in, in, my, in my career, which is still relatively young, nothing, nothing, I, I have seen nothing that pisses off white people as much as affirmative action or the OJ verdict. It's, it's on the same level of just you talk to otherwise reasonable white people and they kind of they kind of can't get over this they feel like it's like it's racism and and it's funny to me because being a black person in the society i kind of want to say yeah sucks don't it when it feels like your race might not help you in every freaking situation like i don't have a whole lot of sympathy but this 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 sticks in this sticks in people's craw in a way that no other social policy does. And it's amazing to me because it's one of the most effective social policies that we've ever had. I feel like that's the that's part of the story that we never talk about with affirmative action. It has been wildly successful at doing exactly what it was what it set out to do, which is to level the playing field, give opportunities to historically disadvantaged groups. Uh, and ironically, especially for white women like Abigail Fisher. Yeah, like, <laughs> ironically, is indeed. Um, it's, it's one of our most successful attempts at social engineering, and it is, it pisses white people off, and I think it's going down um, this June, uh, which, is, which is sad. And if we're going to bring up the context of it, I mean, right now, there's legacy admissions, you know? If you're a legacy, you have 40% chance of getting into Harvard versus a general admit, which only has 11%. Uh, 91% of UVA legacies are white, you know, versus 73% for the general pool. Um, so I think if, if we're going to allow these legacy preferences, um, why wouldn't we, again, defer to the universities to make these complex educational judgments like we already agreed to? I think what, what you said, Ellie, is, is one reason they're so... Uh, mad about it or, or willing to fight tooth and nail is because they only lost five to four. I mean, it was it was close. I mean, it barely held up in 2003. Yep. It, it always barely hold, holds up. I mean, look, but it's not just legacies. I mean, by by overturning, by calling affirmative action constitutional, unconstitutional, what you would be essentially saying is that the universities can look at all sorts of things, legacies, um, your ability to dunk a basketball, um, whether or not you're good at playing a piano, what state you come from. They can look at all, but race is the one thing they can't look at. Um, it, it would be it would be quite an amazing uh, a statement, but I think that is absolutely the way that we're going. Um, I want to transition from that though by saying. Sure, I do think that affirmative action is going down constitutionally um, uh, in this case uh, for public universities. But private schools, especially the best private schools, I think, will still find a way to admit a diverse class because it is important to them. Do you guys agree? I mean, probably. And and for for no small part, the reason that Runway already outlined, which is that a lot of those private schools – already benefit from what I call white affirmative action, which is the leg- the legacy admit system. So if they're going to go that route, I think for a lot of reasons, they want to maintain a counterbalance of diversity admissions to just make it seem like they aren't just letting in people whose great, great grandparents went. All right, Romay, I want to come back to I want to come back to putting you in a racial box. <laughs> Pr- proud Asian man over here. Doesn't read the comments on above the law, but you chose to go to law school in Texas, in Dallas. What's up with that? Why did why why did you choose why did you choose to go to law school 
um, I, I ask I ask in part because um, I recently got an, an email from a from a reader who um, who is a white reader, but they were asking me um, basically if, if it was worth it to go to kind of a, a very respected law school um, that was in a a, a very red state. Um, or if they should kind of go to a lower-ranked law, all else being equal in terms of money, or if they should go to a lower-ranked law school um, in a very liberal state. And I, and I had some sh- trouble answering the question. Um, you went to a respected law school in a very red state, um, uh, dis- uh, b- despite the fact that you're a minority. Uh, take us through that thought process. Uh, yeah, so I uh, finished, completed my MBA and was, uh, did the Michigan State Law. Kind of, there was a one-semester overlap. Um, I had a full full ride to Michigan State Law, and I just wanted to uh, get my see if I liked it. You know, I, I would attend law school, try it out for a year. If I liked it, I would continue. Um, really liked it, and re- realized that uh, there would be more opportunity if I went to the market where I potentially wanted to practice in and uh, to get a, a better ranking because. Whether you're going into big law or, or I guess a harder part of the profession to be in, they they choose from the more select schools, um, whether it's top 14, top 25, or one with strong regional placement. So I, I looked into SMU and I thought it would be great. Uh, not to mention, I was doing long distance with a teacher here in Texas, so uh, uh, it, it definitely influenced my um, it definitely influenced my decision. And uh, to your reader, I, I would go to probably the better ranked law school. That's that's ultimately where I came down because uh, one of the things I said to her, my, my family uh, hails from, from Indiana and uh, for 13 months and nine days, I wasn't counting, but about 13 months and nine days I actually lived um, in Indiana. Um, uh, my, my part of the family is from New York, but my, my mother, my maternal line goes back to Indiana. And one of the things that I realized when I, when I lived in Indiana for 13 months and nine days is that while, while it was a very, very uh, it's much more kind of conservative um, culture than what I grew up, grown up with on New York and in Long Island, you can always find pockets, right? And especially in, a, in an academic community, um, you can always find pockets of people who... Uh, who who want to play ball basically right and so even if you're kind of surrounded generally by a certain kind of culture um, that that alone is not enough for you to to potentially limit your 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 employment options um, just because you can't kind of hold your nose and deal with Dallas for three years so I ultimately came down on the side that she should that she should probably just just go to the red state law school that was better um, as opposed <laughs> and have that be her. Legacy, but it's it's something that's a lot easier for me to say than it would be for for, for me to do, right? Because there's, I like I've I've lived in New York. I went to school in Boston. Well, not in Boston. Um, I, you were supposed to laugh at that joke. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I came back to Manhattan. I live in you know a div- uh, relatively diverse town in Westchester now. Like I I I I, I, I don't I would never move my family to, to to Dallas or to Phoenix or to basically any place between the Hudson and the Rockies. Uh, yeah. I mean, and that's a hard question because you have to get in where you fit in. You have to find somewhere that's a good fit. Obviously, if she chose the higher-ranked law school and it was a terrible fit for her and she couldn't adjust, then that would be a terrible decision. Very, yeah. No, and yeah, I think I – I don't know if I officially weighed in on this one or I just unofficially talked to you about it. But yeah, I, I've al- always thought that going where you feel you're the best fit is probably a better move. 
so long as it's not a massive drop in ranking. Well, I mean, look, white, white privilege means that, uh, like, a, a person who looks like you, Joe, you never have to, this, this does not have to be part of your decision-making. Oh, matrix, no, right? absolutely not. Like, yeah. you could. No, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day about affirmative action. Uh, he's an African-American guy, and he said that one of the problems is that people, white people think of it as though this is supposed to solve racism, and it's not. It's just something that, you know, being given to like help out and he's like and i'm a fan of it and i said well as a white person allow me to say it was the very least we could do the very very least um we haven't we haven't talked a lot of hardcore law on this and as we as we get to the end uh i wanted to close and joe you don't know i'm gonna do this but i wanted to close uh with with a real legal story um joe could you please um tell our listeners how you were recently accused of theft oh yeah no uh Okay, if you want to go through this, yeah, I, uh... It's, it, fits, it fits with what we're talking about. It does. I'm a, I'm a quasi-fugitive. No, it, not at all. It, I was sitting around in a bar watching football with friends, and, you know, my, my friend group is fairly diverse, though at, towards the end of the night, as a quirk of fate, most of my friends had filtered in and out, and it, I, it turned out that the people who were left with me were one white woman and five black men. And we were sitting watching and talking and a fairly drunk guy who was not with us started chatting with us a little bit and then started asking me questions about what neighborhoods we were from and then accused us of picking his pocket. And I was the ringleader, of course, because I, I, I'm the white guy. Obviously, I was the ringleader of these black people. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was it was very much that there are black people here. I don't have my wallet. Well, actually, that's the worst part. He had his wallet. He said somebody had picked the pocket, taken the money out, and then put it back in his pocket because that's, you know, common courtesy among pickpockets, <laughs> I guess. I don't know the industry, but I guess you're supposed to put it back. Uh, but no, so he thought that's what happened and that I had uh, had masterminded this theft. Uh, it it was that's the thing that pissed me off most about this story. Yeah. That not only did he think that the five black guys stole his freaking money, but that the white guy told them to do it. Right. That They couldn't right. even have come up, didn't have the, the internal creativity um, to, to conceive of the plot without some white man help. Yeah. I have a question from the beginning of the show. Uh, Ellie, why, why is your Santa Claus a big old white man? I think when I'm going to raise my children, my Santa Claus is going to be like Splinter. From Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles with a, with a, with a Santa cap. I'm definitely not going to mold them into this big white white universal Santa Claus because I think I would get upset when I gave presents as well. Well, that's a good question. As I, as I, as I suggested, all of the Santas on my tree are black Santas, right? All the angel, the angel at the top of the tree is a black angel. That's how I roll. But I, I can't, I can't, I'm just one person. I cannot... <laughs> I cannot stop the cultural coding that's gonna ha that happens to my three-year-old every time he turns on the television or the iPad or goes to Legoland or goes to Red Lobster. Like, it's just, I can't stop that, right? Santa, as a, a from the conception of a three-year-old, and especially, gotta remember, he's three years old. He doesn't really have a conception of race at all. Joe, Joe could, like, pickpocket those things from his pockets if he ever gathers no. white Santa Clauses. Joe could oh, no. oh, organize no, no. I, a, a group. He, yeah, easy. I would have my minions do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I know I'm telling you, man. One of the one of the difficult things about raising a black child is that you have to figure out when when is the time to impose a 
conception of race upon them so as to say that his race is just as good and valid, right? Because it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen naturally. I, look, I'll, I'll take my own experience. For a long time, for my, my, father, my father is black, but he's very light-skinned. So for a long time, I thought that the only difference between black people and white people was hair. Like, I, I thought... <laughs> Uh, that was the whole thing. I didn't. I couldn't see the skin color because um, my my father was so light skin. And then you know, a little bit TMI. I'm not necessarily proud about this, but you know, when I was relatively old, six, seven years old, you know, I walked in my parents and I told them I wanted to be white. What my parents who marched with King said. <laughs> I was like, well, look. From, from my perspective, from everything I've been told, right, like white people are the ones who are smart and white people are the ones who work hard and white people are the ones who get to be president and black people like dance. And I'm not very good at dancing, mom. So I'm just going to be white now. Can I change my hair? It's the, rev- I, you know, it's the reverse uh, Steve Martin's The Jerk. You mean I'm going to yeah, stay yeah. this color? <laughs> it, it, it was, it, look, it, it, it was. It, I say TMI for me. It's really TMI for my mom. It was a bad day for my mom. Like she had to, my mom had to kind of critically rethink um, um, some things about our, our upbringing, right? But it's a hard, it's a hard thing to understand when, when do you kind of pull that trigger? At three, I can't, I can't do anything. I can't do anything about my kid's conception of Santa Claus. I just have to live with it. And I don't want to get too Freudian on this, but yeah, I think you you've gone through whatever what every first generation or second generation immigrant has has gone through is just the children just want to fit in, and you just want to be one of the white children growing up. So uh, that's I think that's really natural uh, of you. Again, I, my parents marched with King. I'm. I, I guess I would expect maybe a spanking from your from your little speech, but <laughs> <laughs> they felt worse about themselves than they did about me. They, they realized that that was kind of on them. All right, <laughs> all right, it's fair enough. But I got all right, so we got we. Sh- and not yes, have we've been we've been running and it's been great, but we really here, are Joe. reaching our time limit. So, want to thank Runway for joining us. Thanks for and uh, look for his work on Above the Law. Joe, thank you for setting this up. I really appreciated it. It was a good Absolutely. time. Absolutely. And uh, well, Ellie, do you have any parting words? Uh, dude, it's it's like. 78 hours until I get to see Star Wars. Uh, it's, yeah, well, it's we'll pretty yeah, much where we'll, my life is right now. <laughs> we'll hear your assessment of that on on the back end. So uh, in the meantime, if you want to if you enjoy this podcast and you aren't already subscribing on iTunes or whatever podcast app you utilize, you should do that. That would be a good thing. Also, give us a review. Give us some stars. Write something. It all helps in increasing our visibility as a podcast. And if you want to follow any of us, I know that uh, Ellie and I both have Twitter accounts. We both are on Above the Law and ATL Redline. We're all over the place. So you can get more of us outside of even this exciting audio medium. And with that, I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Thank everyone who was on the show today, uh, Bronway and Ellie. And for me, I'll say goodbye and we'll talk to you soon. Peace out. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own. 
and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.